This is Undisciplined. I'm Nalini Nadkarni. One of the major environmental challenges on our planet is the loss of global biodiversity because of deforestation. The factors that contribute to it are as complex as the interconnections among the species themselves. But it's not just logging and conversion of forests to pastures that drives this. The building of dams and the effects of flooding lowlands and isolating ridgetop forests into islands is another major factor in loss of biota in species-rich tropical forests. A recent study by an interdisciplinary team based in Brazil and England applied the approach of network analysis to understand the effects of a large dam in Brazil on over 600 species of animals and plants. That approach allowed them to document the specific effects of flooding and habitat isolation on the diversity of biota in one of the most species-rich habitats on our planet. This timely study contributes to much-needed understanding of the subtle but very real impacts of creating hydropower for our energy-hungry world. Our guest today is Filipa Palmeiring in Brazil. Filipa, welcome. We're delighted to have you on our show today. Thank you very much. I'm delighted that you made time to talk with us about your experiences and insights about um, the impacts of building dams on tropical biodiversity. But, but first, I'd like to introduce you to our listeners. Filipa's background is in ecology, and her research focuses on the complex biodiversity responses to habitat loss and fragmentation in tropical forests, particularly with the structure of food webs and ecosystem functioning. She's worked with a wide range of biological groups, and her research has taken her to Brazil, Malaysia, and China. Filipa, before we get into the specifics of your paper, can you give us a brief context on the field of understanding on the effects of habitat fragmentation? So we are still uh, looking at the patterns of species diversity across uh, fragmented landscapes, uh, and uh, trying also to understand what, are, what is driving those patterns. And uh, we can go further, we can try to understand the processes generating those patterns. So now people look at the different dimensions of diversity, uh, species traits, and then what are the consequences in terms of ecosystem functioning, and then on the delivery of the ecosystem services for humanity as well. Um, Well, let's get to your paper. Um, I was wondering if you could just describe the field area where you worked. You know, and obviously, since we're on radio, we can't really give our listeners a visual display of the area. So could you describe the kinds of forests and the vegetation where you, you did this work? Yes. So this study was carried out in the Balbina Hydroelectric Reservoir. And this is a very large uh, reservoir. It has more than 400,000 hectares in it more than 3,500 islands, so forest islands, of different sizes and isolations. And uh, some of the islands are very uh, irregularly shaped with very weird shapes. And then those islands are isolated in what we call an aquatic matrix, which is the lake. And the lake has some standing trees that are now dead, so they are just dead trees Uh, and uh, we move from one side to another or from one island to another by boat navigating through that dead forest. Wow 
That's amazing. Um, when was this project, this Balbina hydroelectric reservoir, when was this dam put in? How long has it been there? So the dam was created in uh, uh, 1987. I see. Okay, so it's been around for quite a while. And were there measurements made before the dam was 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 created? So before the dam was created, there were uh, actions that, so people were rescuing uh, animals, basically, but uh, there was not an environmental impact assessment done before damming the river. What we do now, uh, we look at uh, intact or mainland continuous forest areas surrounding the reservoir, and we use those areas as a baseline for the area before damming. And I read that you you and your co-author studied 22 of these habitat patches that you mentioned with these sort of islands that used to be ridgetop forests. Um, what was the vegetation in these patches in general? Was this lowland rainforest? Was this high elevation forest? Uh, so the vegetation is the lowland uh, rainforest. Uh, the smaller the island, typically, the there are the so-called edgy fats. For example, there, there's uh, the wind hits strongly on the edges of the islands. So if uh, an island is small, it's quite easy to, to get uh, habitat degraded inside. So the habitat varies according to that. So the vegetation structure um, varies according to that. So if we go to a small island, there's no not many big trees, but you, if we go to a large island and we get to out of the, the edge, we can see the big trees. I see. Um, and, you know, I know that I'm very well aware that the diversity of these tropical, low, especially lowland forests, is extremely high. And in some cases, the taxonomy of these species are very poorly known. And I'm wondering how you went about identifying these down to genera or species, did you have to spend a lot of time during the study to go to taxonomic experts or to go to museums to try to, to really identify these down to species? Was that, a, was that a barrier or a problem or a challenge? No, not so much. Uh, it was okay. So we had some issues, but uh, that's normal for the tropics. For example, uh, in the case of the small mammals, I was actually taking a, a piece uh, of tissue, a sample of tissue from each individual to get the genetics. Uh, but because I could not uh, process all the samples for all the sites, there were some spe species that I could not identify just looking at the animals. I would have to look at the skull and I was not really collecting the animals. So for those cases, I just considered the, the genus because genus was the same. So in some cases, we were not uh, identifying the animals and, until the species level. Um, I want to sort of shift our talk here away from the species themselves. And I'm really curious about the approach that you used, which was applying network theory and network analysis to understand these impacts of the dam on um, on species diversity. I was wondering if you could describe what the approach of network theory and analysis is, what it was developed for, how you might have modified it, and how it helped you answer your questions. So uh, the network theory has been applied in ecology uh, mostly to understand um, 
species interactions. So species, species interactions. In this case, we are looking at species site interactions. So in this case, uh, our networks are uh, comprised by species and sites. And what links one species to a site is uh, the shared co-occurrence of species. So we can imagine um, a cloud of points that are the sites. And then what is connecting all those points are the species that are uh, shared between sites. Wow, it sounds like an enormous mathematical uh, sort of process. So was that very complex? Are there big programs that you use to, to sort of work with network analysis? And did you have to do any modification to apply network theory to your particular uh, questions? So actually it was uh, pretty straightforward because uh, there's, um, there's a lot of things done for the species species uh, net, uh, networks. And so in this case, we were just using the traditional metrics that are typically used in these kind of studies. I see. Well, that sounds great. Um, in reading your results, it seems that there was widespread species extinction, especially of large-bodied animal species, but that that result varied across different groups of plants and vertebrates and invertebrates. So I'm wondering what particular groups were affected by this that you could that you could document it during using your your approach. So the animal groups that were most affected uh, were the dung beetles and the birds. And you see that um, because uh, those groups they were more in, a, in an exercise we did, so in, in that exercise, we were taking from the network the largest sites. So we started taking the, doing a simulation, taking the largest uh, islands, and we would see what was happening with the remaining species um, persisting in the network. And we could see that uh, the least, the least robust networks were those of the uh, the dung beetles and the birds. So, in the case of the dung beetles, uh, this group was totally absent from the smallest islands we survived. I see. And were there any animal groups that were not or did not seem to be affected by this fragmentation, or any that were positively affected? So we could not see any uh, positive effect of habitat loss and fragmentation. Uh, but uh, for instance, archive bees were not so much affected like the other groups. So if we still retain half, um, I'm sorry, if we still retain um, uh, islands of mid-size, we can still have a good number of orchid bee species. So orchid bee species then could be maintained or sustained if there are some mid-sized islands that, that persist. Is that is that right? Exactly. So it seems like there are two, two different things happening when you get this flooding effect of the dam. One is just the inundation of the lowland areas with water that is being drowned, and the other is isolating those higher elevation forests on islands. And wondering whether you could differentiate the relative effects of that sort of drowning effect versus the making of islands or isolation of the higher elevation forests. 
we have two uh, different areas. So the areas that we lose that are the low uh, elevation areas and then the areas that persist, which are the previous hilltops uh, that become islands. Uh, and so when we flood these low, low elevation areas, we are losing unique biodiversity because the rivers, for example, the small streams, they are located in the lowland areas. In the islands we were working, there were virtually no streams. In, uh, in the case of lizards, for example, we we could notice that there were two species that were completely vanished from the archipelagic landscape, uh, from the insular fragmented landscape. Um, and we found that because in the mainland continuous forest, we went to the streams and we were surveying the lizards there. And we could notice these two species that, uh, that we could not find uh, anywhere else. Got it. Um, changing the topic just a little bit, I, I note that one of the earliest and most well-known studies about the effects of forest fragmentation on biodiversity in tropical forests was in the early 90s, and it was led by Tom Lovejoy, who was, um, uh, and he and his team used a different approach from yours. Uh, he and his team did this uh, sort of intentional and designed study in which he started with a large tract of forest and then experimentally cleared replicate patches into one hectare, 10 hectare, 100 hectare, and 1,000 hectare pieces and followed the biodiversity of each of those patches. But you, what your team did was a little bit different. Um, you were sort of using the fragmented habitat that was created by the dam. And so I'm wondering, um, does that allow you to compare your results with that of, of Lovejoy and his team? Yes, and that's a very interesting comparison. First of all, our study areas are very close to each other. They are separated by less than 200 kilometers in a, in a straight line. Uh, and the big difference is the, the matrix setting. So in, a, in my study, the fragments are isolated within an aquatic and hospital matrix, at least for terrestrial species. Whereas in the Thomas Lovejoy uh, experiment, Fragments were isolated by mostly by pastures, at least in the very beginning. So it's a very interesting comparison uh, because we would expect uh, the effects of habitat loss and fragmentation to be more negative in the aquatic, uh, in the in the insular fragments than in the terrestrial fragments, because species would uh, struggle to move from one site to another. Got it. Um, I'd like to shift gears just a little bit again and talk about some of the human aspects of this study and um, the implications of this for uh, energy use. Um, and I, I know that this dam is used for hydro energy and we tend to think of hydro energy and electricity as being cleaner than using fossil fuels for our energy needs. But one of the comments in the paper was that um, making dams can generate a powerful methane pump. That is, it can generate methane and we know that methane is an even more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So I was wondering, what is it about the creation of dams that increases methane? Uh, so I'll, I'll start from the very beginning. And it starts with the, the relief of tropic, lowland tropical forests is relatively flat. So when a, dim, a river is dammed, uh, what happens is that a very a large reservoir is created and then 
we, with very shallow waters as well due to the topography of the area. And so what happens is that because uh, the forest is not previously cleaned, but we have to think that we are talking about, uh, uh, about huge expanses of forests. So that forest is not clear, cleared before. Uh, and then it, uh, it, it will be uh, there decomposing uh, for years and years. And it's the case of Albina. So this is what I was telling before about the dead forest. So the tree trunks stay there uh, for years and years. Got it. I understand. And that sort of leads to another question, which is, uh, much as we might want to use hydro energy rather than fossil fuels, your paper and, and others like it make the very important point that um, that there's a loss of biodiversity, a loss of species as we make these dams and, and lose these species. And your co-author, um, Professor Carlos Perez, who's a professor in, of environmental studies at um, uh, at U, UEA, said, Tropical developing countries are still hell-bent on creating vast hydropower reservoirs under the banner of green energy. <clears throat> and I know my, I don't know myself much about geopolitics, but I'm sure that there's a great need because of the great need for economic development, especially in tropical and developing countries, um, that might have a lot of influence in terms of creating dams. And I'm, I'm wondering, what were the forces that created this Balbina Dam? Is that something that was driven by economics rather than environmental concerns. Can you sort of talk about that? Yes. So at more than 30 years ago, it was certainly about economics. And in the specific case of Balbina, people talk, they talk about a mistake, an engineer mistake, because Balbina is especially large. For example, if we compare Balbina, them, with the and not so far dam, also in the Amazon biome, but in a different state, the Tukurui Dam. That dam is uh, nearly half the size of Balbina, and it produces more than 20 times the energy of Balbina. So there, there's really something wrong with Balbina, we think. Uh, so And it, it's complicated because hydroelectric uh, energy is not the only option we have, and we know that, unfortunately, People maybe they are not yet considering um, other types of energy. So I was wondering about what your team thinks about recommendations. Uh, we know that humans have to stop using fossil fuels because of the terrible environmental and social consequences of global warming. But but your study and others about making dams in tropical regions uh, really tells that we should not flood forests because we don't want to increase biodiversity loss and disruptions to ecosystems. So it seems that we need to think more about alternative power, uh, power generation, nuclear power or wind power or solar power. And I'm wondering what you and your team think about this. And I'm also wondering whether Brazil is moving towards making the right choices in this direction. So what we can for sure say, uh, based on our experience in Balbina, is that the, the selection for the site where the dam will be constructed is very important because that will determine the amount of energy to be flooded and also the amount of energy to be produced. So if we do not have a steep slope, then we will not have much energy being produced in that dam. Uh, and that is what I think that should be considered when people are deciding about what energy to 
the, about the source of energy they want to purchase. Um, well, in Brazil, there's plenty of uh, dams planted for the uh, next decades uh, to be constructed. So I think uh, uh, hydropower is still a very strong option in Brazil. In an earlier interview, your co-author, Professor Carlos Perez, said, we need a much better strategic dialogue between sustainable energy security and biodiversity conservation, particularly in the world's most biodiverse emergent economies like Brazil. And I think that's a very important and provocative statement. And I, I wonder what your thoughts are about the role that scientists have to communicate what they have learned about, say, in this example, biodiversity, to policymakers and to the public. Is that the role of you as a scientist, you and your colleagues as scientists, or do you think that scientists just do the research and then somebody else can sort of do that translation to policymakers? Well, I think that's a very good question because it's very hard for us to be listening. So we, we have to make noise about that. Our way of doing this is exactly by uh, having our our the, our results published in the news, for example. So we call the attention for the issues. And apart from that, it's very hard uh, for our results to be included in the political agenda, for example. Right. Um, do you think that scientists have a role in communicating this to the public? Do you give talks to the public or write articles that, that the general public reads? Or do you say, mm, this is really, we published our work in, in science, you know, in scientific journals. We've communicated our work in scientific conferences. And that's that's all we can do. No, definitely not. Uh, that's why we, we call the intention to the media so our results can uh, achieve uh, a larger audience than just the scientific audience, which is, there's not much we can do only if we do not go out of our circle. Right. I, I agree with you with that. I, I certainly do. And that's, I guess, one of the reasons why we wanted to invite you to this radio program so that all of our listeners here in Utah and the Intermountain West can learn about the important work that you've been doing. Using network analysis, using these sophisticated scientific approaches, what are the lessons that the public and policymakers can learn from you and your study in terms of what has happened as a result of installing this dam? So our study, we showed that uh, for the eight biological groups we worked with, uh, we can say that all of them were uh, quite strongly affected by the habitat loss and isolation created by the hydroelectric dam. So there were widespread uh, local species extinctions for all the groups. And we also came to realize that the persisting species diversity is more about generalist species that can actually persist in any in any environment. And uh, we wonder about the impacts of that, about the impacts of losing the forest-dependent species, for example. And then uh, we use it, this uh, network approach, which allowed us to to consider the landscape as a, a whole unit, which is uh, different from what has been done before. We have uh, a quite straightforward comparison between the, the taxonomic groups. Excellent. Uh, as we mentioned at the beginning of this interview, your team is distributed in six different institutions. And I can imagine that that brings with it 
as well as the benefits of, of collaborations, it also presents challenges in terms of communication and so forth. And I'm wondering whether your experience with this very collaborative study um, has sort of motivated you to continue with interdisciplinary work or if you're more planning on doing individual research in the future? Now, in uh, after especially after the pandemic, the COVID nineteen pandemic, uh, I think everyone got used to to work at a distance, uh, and this is kind of our reality now. And uh, I, I do not believe we can do a good job if we work uh, isolated from each other. So the input of more people is needed for absolutely anything in science. Uh, so definitely I want to continue collaborating um, with my colleagues and uh, we also take advantage when we go to international meetings and we get to know more people and we strengthen our collaborations. That's a great piece of advice, I think, of of making those personal relationships, forging those personal relationships in order to sort of lay the groundwork for for collaborations and, and mutual research. So that that's a great comment. Um, well, I, I see you as an emerging scientist who's really launching a career in this very important area of research. And we really want to thank you again so much for taking the time to share this, this work with our listeners. Um, we at Utah Public Radio wish you and your colleagues the very best for your work in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Nalini Narkarni. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. Big ideas.